What's going on, guys? It's JP from The Double Double, and I'm here with my co-host, Ben. What's going on, everybody? Welcome. And we have a lot to talk about. The entire in-season tournament has happened, and we're going to run through both of the teams that made the finals journey to getting there and the eventual winner. Let's start with an up-and-coming team, the Indiana Pacers. They had to face Ben's hometown Celtics to start off the tournament. Ben, what were your thoughts on that game and the Pacers winning that one? I, you know, for as much of a Celtics fan as I am, I was so excited watching the Pacers win this, man. I mean, watching that game, you could tell how much they wanted it, how hard that bench was going crazy every time they made a big play. This is the sort of team, I think, when we look at this in-season tournament year after year, that's going to be one of the top contenders. A team that's got a lot of guys who are young, who are not being paid a lot of money, who just want to hoop. And when you're led by Halliburton, man, what a game he had against the Celtics. I I was so happy with the Pacers this entire time, this entire story. But yeah, they, it really wasn't close at the end versus the Celtics. It was a competitive game, but it kind of just felt like the Pacers were taking it. Yeah, I think I remember it being like a tie game at half. And then it just kind of felt like Halliburton ran the entire game from that point forward. Tatum was awesome. The the Pacers don't really have the personnel to have anyone to kind of like stop Jason Tatum. Um, But it kind of felt like the blossoming of a superstar with Halliburton where in that fourth quarter, he felt like the best player in the game. Like I wasn't scared of Tatum. I was just thinking like every single time Halliburton has the ball, this is bad news. And obviously Halliburton had a four point play to basically close out the game. And he asked for a switch onto Jalen Brown on that play and then buried a dagger three and got fouled to kind of close it out. Like that is a superstar moment for an up and coming player. And the Pacers have just like been one of the most fun watches of the entire year. Um, Usually we do a league pack league pass rankings, like heading into the season I think it's between the Pacers and OKC uh, for the number one spot right now, just off of pure entertainment. Absolutely, man. Halliburton had, I believe, 39 assists in the three in-season tournament games, the finals, um, the semifinals and the quarterfinals. He's just insane, man. The the way that he sets up an offense is amazing. Uh, Me and you had a conversation about this, and I'll just bring it to the pod just to have this conversation on the pod, about whether or not Tyrese Halliburton is more close to like a Nikola Jokic or like a Steve Nash in the way that he takes shots. Because Halliburton's not putting up, you know, he's got 30, 40 point games, but he's not taking 25, 28 shots a night. Uh, Jokic is the same sort of dude who doesn't want to take a lot of shots. He wants to get his teammates involved. But what we've seen from Halliburton is when you need him to take big shots, he will do it. And he'll do it without problem. Yeah, he's more Jokic to me than Steve Nash. Like, Steve Nash, playoff teams were kind of scheming against him to force him to shoot. No one will ever do that to Tyrese Halliburton. No. If you give that guy looks, he will take them and he will bury them. And it's similar with Jokic. Like, if you're giving Jokic good shots, he will take them and he will hit them and he will win the game for you. Um, We've seen Jokic score 50 points in a playoff game. Like, if you let him score, he will score. Um, Let's, like, switch... Uh, sides for a second though and talk about the Celtics because we have a lot more Pacers to talk about did this game worry you at all did this mean anything to you as a Celtics fan because obviously in the Northeast we really care about our sports and we overact overreact to everything Um, and there was some clamor on Twitter oh Jalen Brown zero assists in the last two games he took 46 shots and zero assists Uh, you know Porzingis when he's not out there the the Celtics can't play defense. Did any of this matter to you at all? Or was this a game against a team that really, really wanted it? This to me was a game against a team that just wanted it more than the Celtics wanted it. And when you're, you know, when you've got the chance to win half a million dollars and you're a dude who's making, uh, you know, you're on a two-way contract or you're making $2 million, that's a lot of money, man. Compared to a guy like Jason Tatum making $38 million, an extra half a million dollars isn't going to move him as much. Um, you know, the thing with Jalen Brown, I'm not worried at all about it. If you watched that game, those two games, there might've been eight or nine potential assists spread out among those two games where guys just brick all those shots. Um, he knows how to make these passes. There was a game just before those two games. I think he had six or seven assists and he was looking really good playmaking. I'm not worried about it one bit. I do think it's interesting just the the strategy the Pacers have where it's just, we don't know how to, we don't have the personnel to stop anybody, but we will outscore you. 
Like Jason Tatum had a great game, man. And typically when Mm -hmm. he's got a game like that, the Celtics are in great position. But it's really just the strategy of the Pacers to let one guy go off and we're just going to out-offense you. Yeah, I I wasn't really worried about the Celtics either. The only thing that kind of stood out to me was I want them to get a backup center at the trade deadline. Um, me, particularly, I want them to get Andre Drummond just because I think the Bulls are going to explode. Mm-hmm. Um, I was messing around on the trade machine quite a bit this last week trying to figure out how the Celtics can improve with the salary that they have on that roster. Um it's hard to do, but yeah. Drummond's only making like $3 million a year. If you guys are willing to part ways with like Luke Cornett and O'Shea Brissett and then maybe throw a first-round pick to the Bulls just to get Drummond, I think that might be worth it to insulate that spot if Porzingis does get banged up. Other than that, this this didn't concern me really at all. Jason Tatum played incredibly. He's still a top 6-7 guy in the league. Jalen Brown, he played well in this game. Yes, he didn't have an assist, but he scored 30 points efficiently. Like, I don't know how much more you can ask from that guy. Drew Holiday had a struggle a little bit. He got cooked by Halliburton. Like, Halliburton cooked his shit. He spun him around twice in the fourth quarter and got threes off of those shots. He's one of the best up-and-coming players in the league. Drew Holiday, we know he's a great defender. It's, you know, it doesn't... Big picture, it doesn't really mean anything. Um, I think the Celtics are just fine. Yeah, but I think we kind of have known from the start of the season that their playoff hopes rest on Porzingis going into the playoffs healthy. Yeah. Um, they put a lot of effort into getting him in Holiday, and we know Drew Holiday's not a guy who steps up offensively when the playoffs start. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we're seeing they're going to lose games to really good teams without Kristaps Porzingis. That's absolutely going to happen. Uh, going into the playoffs, he needs to be healthy if they want to have a shot at winning the whole thing. Yeah, 100%. Uh, let's move on to the Pacers-Bucks game. This one was awesome. I want to comment on the starting time, too. For me, here on the East Coast, who has to work night shifts most likely at my job, um, having this game start at 2 p.m. was awesome. I got to watch the entire thing before my class started. It was great. Um, this one was super, super exciting. I'm going to talk about the Pacers first, obviously. Miles Turner has kind of butt into, like, a pseudo-great center. Um, It's probably a little bit of Halliburton's, like, playmaking wizardry. I get that. But his ability to space the floor, his ability to block shots, and his just underrated athleticism. Like, in this game, he had two dunks over Giannis. Like, crammed it on Giannis's head. You have to be a, a certain level of athlete to even attempt that play. Um, obviously Halliburton, 27 points, 15 assists, zero turnovers, just one of those crazy, crazy games that he has. They end up taking this one over the Bucks, who looked kind of flat-footed in the first half, but Damian Lillard went absolutely berserk in that fourth, uh, third quarter, excuse me. And the Bucks switched to his own, and it worked for about like six minutes, and then Andrew Nemhart hit four straight mid-range shots, and then it kind of threw that into a, a weird spot, but... The Pacers figured out the Bucs. I was encouraged by the Bucs in that third quarter, but then things kind of went downhill. What were your thoughts of this like entire game? It's crazy when you watch the Pacers just how much they can get a bucket from anybody. If you look at who was efficient that night, Obi, I'll name the guys who shot 50% or above. Obi Toppin, Miles Turner, Tyrese Halliburton, Andrew Nemhart, Isaiah Jackson, TJ McConnell. Those are kind of random names outside of Halliburton and Miles Turner. And you could just rely on three or four dudes on this team to have an efficient night, go four a seven from the field, and just be a positive on offense. The third quarter from Dame, unbelievable. The fourth quarter from Dame, trash, man, trash. Um, the Bucks are really heating up, and I'm not worried about the Bucks at all. You know, Dame Lillard is going to have these nights, but... Overall, I like the way the Bucks are putting things together, but this was just a case of running into a team who wanted it more, a team who was a little more put together, who had a little bit more chemistry. Um, and, but what a showdown. What a fun game. Yeah, this one was another example of Tyrese Halliburton kind of turning into a budding superstar. He hit a game-closing shot again after doing it against the Celtics, and he's staring down Damian Lillard, copying his celebration, doing the Dame time. Um he is at a level of like supreme confidence right now. And like the same thing, like he felt like the best player on the floor when Giannis Antetokounmpo is on the other side. 
how many players can you realistically say that about? That list is so, so small, even though Giannis was spectacular in this game. Um, to talk about the Bucks, 37 points from Giannis and 10 rebounds. He hit 11 out of his 13 free throws, only missed six shots on the night. Like, he was absolutely decimating this team. Um, Chris Middleton looks awesome. It's a shame that he has, like, a minutes cap because he's still, like, slowly ramping up from injury. But when he's on the floor, he's cooking everybody. This was a great, great game. And we heard some reports about the Bucks afterwards that there was some turmoil in the locker room with Coach Adrian Griffin. And I said, I think during our last podcast, like, is he about to get the Joe Missoula credit where all of Milwaukee blames everything on Coach Griffin? The players are turning on Coach Griffin, it looks like, already. Like, Giannis on his press conference kind of threw the whole team under the bus and Damian Lillard's leak and shit to Chris Haynes about this shit. What are your feelings on just the Bucks? Because as a team and a talent, they look awesome. But, like, what is the vibe? What, what Does the vibe concern you moving forward? Like, what is going on there? The vibe is not great, but the team is 15-7. and seven. Right. And they're the third seed. They're tied with Orlando for the second seed. So, you know, their expectations are lofty, man. They have been a team who just steamrolls team after team. You know, the Bucks of last year, they're probably just winning this comfortably. Yeah. Um, Adrian Griffin as a brand new head coach. Definitely. He's going to have some shit. He's got to figure out. I don't like that. It's Bobby Portis who's starting beef with Adrian Griffin. He is not an important enough player on this team. He's yeah. an excellent role player, but the job of an excellent role player is to, you know, pretty much just shut up and accept the role you're given and to be as good of a team player as you can be. Right. And I, you know, I don't love that. He's a guy going after Adrian Griffin, but We've seen problems, man. The defense is still 23rd in the NBA. I don't know if they've got the personnel to really be even a top half defense, but there are things that could be improved, certainly, in this Bucks offense and defense. Yeah, for sure. And Bobby Portis, like you said, like he's had a horrible season. So for him to be the guy to call out his head coach, it felt strange. Uh, Damian Lillard has been on a ramp up. He's been playing a lot better. Chris Middleton, Giannis have all been playing incredibly they actually need Bobby Portis to step up and do something. It's odd that he's the one calling out Adrian Griffin. Um, that team, that's something to look at moving forward. The Adrian, Adrian Griffin relationship with his players, uh, even though this team's absolutely demolishing people. And like you said, they're the third seed in the East. Like a lot of teams would love to trade places with them. That's the talent doing that. I'm not sure how much coaching deserves credit for right. that 15 and seven record. Very, very similar to my argument against Joe Missoula last year, where yeah, he has yeah, just man. a super squad that can win them games regardless of coaching. Yeah. When it's a really, really good team, how much is Adrian Griffin really doing? What right. does his coaching even look like? We really have no idea. We had this conversation with Joe Missoula last year. What does he even do? We don't know. I know he doesn't call timeouts, but like <laughs> behind the scenes, what is he doing right or wrong, great or poorly? We have no idea. Nobody knows. Right. Um, it was a, it was a just an excellent game though from Indiana, and I just want to see them in games that matter more. I love how Tyrese Halliburton was kind of talking about like this is my first taste of games that truly matter, like playoff atmosphere games, and I want more. And you can tell he wants more. I'm so excited to see him in playoff games once they start mattering. Yeah, uh, but absolutely. let's move on and let's talk about the Lakers. Because yeah. they made their way here, too, and they did it through just size. Through just size and versatility and strength in the paint. LeBron James won the in-season MVP, and we'll get to that. But he just had, you know, excellent game after excellent game. This man is almost 39 years old. Yeah. Every year, this shit gets crazier that he yeah. just keeps doing this. Right. Yeah, no, he's insane. We'll talk about the Suns game, and we'll eventually get to that, but... The Suns game comes down to a three-point game. There was some controversy about a timeout call. Whatever. The Suns didn't play well enough to win the game. That's mm -hmm. what I know. Kevin Durant and Devin Booker had 12 turnovers between the two of them. Yes, they had a great scoring nights, but that's not going to work against a team like the Lakers. LeBron in that game, 31 points, 8 rebounds, 11 assists, only 2 turnovers with 5 steals. It's kind of a reminder that the all-time greats are just different than everyone else. Like, LeBron is either the best or the second best player ever to play. And when he can turn it on, he's just better than everyone. Still, yes. to this day at 39 years old. He's still better than every player in the league when he feels like it. This was an example of that. 
Absolutely. And I guess this is a little bit off topic. We don't do the GOAT debate very often because it's almost impossible to compare LeBron to a dude who played 30 years ago and the way that their play styles are, the way the game is played. Does this kind of play, LeBron almost at 39 years old, playing as well as he does in these moments, does this move you at all in terms of his spotlight or his place among the greats? Absolutely. For me, it does. Um, I have kind of firmly been on, uh, I've firmly been a fence sitter for years Mm -hmm. where it's my take has always been, if you need to get to the finals, you're choosing LeBron. If you need to win a finals, you're choosing Michael Jordan. Um, and I still just feel that way. Like there's not, there's never been a player in the history of the NBA that's been better at lifting talent around him than LeBron James ever. And we're seeing that again, like when they need to win games against the sun, don't worry, hop on my back. I'll bring you to, I'll bring you to a win. And then obviously if we moved on to the Pelicans game, like that wasn't even close. And he, LeBron's just a tone setter in a different light than other guys like Kevin Durant or Giannis or even Jokic. Like, LeBron, when he sets a tone, the game's over at tip-off. And just not a lot of guys are like that. Yeah, and to me, just the fact that it has continued for as long as it has. I remember tweets from people in, like, 2018 talking about how LeBron's only 33. This sh- he's already 33. This shit's not going to continue forever. And yeah. it's just, he just keeps going, man. Um, So in that sense, the fact that he can still be this team lifter and he's not a guy like every other old legend that we've seen kind of have to force himself into a bench role and like really just dwindle in front of our eyes. I have not seen LeBron James lose a step. Obviously, he's a different player than he used to be, but we saw against the Pelicans 30 points in 22 minutes on 95% true shooting. If you give him easy buckets, if you give him shots he likes, he is just going to hit him all day, every day. And this is what's really weird about what he's playing, like how he's playing right now. He's shooting 41% from three. We're at a quarter mark of the season, folks. This isn't like a three-game sample where he's shooting 40%. No, we are a quarter through the season. Now, do I expect him to stay at that mark? Probably not. No. But through 25 or 20-something games, 22 games, he's playing like that? That is ridiculous. Like, honestly, you can make a case for him being the second-best player right now if you wanted to in the league, and I'm not going to fight you on it. I'm just not going to. He's, I mean, it's it's hard to even know where you place him in the NBA right now. I loved the conversation between Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. I don't know if you saw that, with Pierce yeah. trying to say he wasn't a top-five player. It's wrong. He's absolutely a top-five player in yeah. this league right now. Um Anthony Davis, great game one, Mm. kind of fell off game two, great game three. Um, And that's the story with Anthony Davis is every other game, you're going to get a little bit of disappointment from him. I loved the way he stepped up in the championship game. 41 points, 20 rebounds, four blocks. He was an absolute fucking monster, man. And he was the reason that they were so dominant in that game. It was was an excellent, excellent game from AD. 41 points, 20 boards, and four blocks. I mean, that is that is Shaq. That yeah. is, and LeBron even said that after the game. Like, this is a Shaq-like performance. It's funny when we get to see Anthony Davis in that zone. And honestly, as, as someone who's been, I think, a very big fan of Davis's, and I've defended Davis on this podcast multiple times, I, I know I've called him the best player in the world at moments on this podcast, um, this is the type of shit that gets me fired up because I saw a level of intensity from Anthony Davis in this game that I don't know if I've ever seen. Like, actually, like even in the bubble championship, I'm not sure I saw him care this much. And when he's locked in, th- there's nothing you do. You lose. Like, I know the Pacers aren't really built to stop a guy like him, but I don't really care. He could have been up against Rudy Gobert and the Timberwolves. If Anthony Davis has this type of like, I'm actually going to control the game. You can't do anything about it. And LeBron, you know, he played incredibly against the Pelicans and he played incredibly against the Suns. In this game, he was okay. He had six turnovers. He missed more than half of his shots. He was good, but not what he was the two games before. Anthony Davis just took this thing and ran with it. Yes, we see games from Anthony Davis, maybe a dozen a year, where if you watch the game from start to end, you would think this is the best player in the NBA. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know where it goes, 
Uh, just the fact that it shows up, you know, once in a blue moon and then it disappears for me is infuriating yeah. because I could have seen Anthony Davis being the best player in the NBA like five years ago. I could have said that that was realistic. Right. Um, to me, the insane part of this is 93 points out of LeBron James, Anthony Davis and Austin Reeves without a three pointer, without a single made three. Those dudes yeah. put up 93 points. They only took 13 threes as a team. And the fact that they were able to get this victory, I mean, it shows, first of all, the personnel of the Pacers, they don't have bodies that are going to stop every 6'8 forward coming at the hoop um, that the Lakers have. But just what a way to get a victory, man. Yeah, it, it's wildly impressive. I think the Lakers are just built to stop you from scoring and from to score inside. And those are the two things the Pacers, you know, try. they try to score a lot and they give you free points at the bucket. The Lakers were the perfect team to kind of counteract who the Pacers are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were kind of talking pre-podcast, like what happened in this game. And I just want to give the Lakers a ton of credit on defense. I think they are one of the premier defenses in the entire league. And just in terms of personnel, LeBron James, Cam Reddish, Torian Prince, Jared Vanderbilt, Rui Hachimura. All of these guys are like 6'9 forwards or taller. The length and the athleticism on this team on the defensive side of the ball with Anthony Davis, you know, protecting the rim, it's just really hard to beat. I don't really care how talented you are on offense. You have to go to round Cam Reddish, who's 6'9", and then the guy behind him is Rui Hachimura, who's 6'10". Um, they just have layers to this defense. It's really, can the Lakers figure out a way to be a better three-point shooting team by the postseason? And then they kind of enter themselves into this, like, Nuggets level contender in my eyes. Honestly, man, I don't see them being a better three point shooting team. Uh, LeBron James has his nights where he will go five or six from three, but then he's also got nights where he'll go 0 of four. Anthony Davis, I don't remember the last time he made a three pointer. Um, Torian Prince is a bit iffy. D'Angelo Russell's iffy. Cam Reddish is iffy. You know, Rihachimura had a great playoff game, playoff run, but he's iffy. Mm-hmm. So are they going to find guys? Are they going to just pull guys out of the woodworks who can be really effective three-point shooters? I don't really know. Um, But when you watch this game against the Pacers, man, the thing that I immediately stood out to me, and it it stands out to anybody who just takes a look at box scores, the amount of people who took shots on the Pacers. Tyrese Halliburton took 14 shots. There's seven guys who took over 10 shots. That's not a thing that I expect to happen very often. And I want to give a little bit of complaining Tyrese Halliburton's direction. But what it really was, man, is the Lakers have tall, long defenders who force the ball out of his hands. If if Halliburton had more good shots to take, he would have taken them. Yeah, Halliburton's one of the players where he will expose whatever weakness you show him. The weakness that they showed him was, we're going to leave your guys wide open. The guys didn't hit their shots. Buddy Heald, 3 of 11. Miles Turner, 3 of 11. You know what I mean? Bruce Brown, 2 of 9. That's not going to win you a game against the Lakers who are pile-driving into the paint every single play. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of these two teams making it to the, you know, the in-season tournament finale, looking forward, do you think this is like a good way to view these teams as the Pacers are like a, a borderline sneaky great playoff team and the Lakers could potentially be a contender? Or do you think this is like... You know, it's all fun. I'm glad they got their money, but this doesn't mean anything long term. Where do you kind of sit on how we view these teams moving forward? That's a great question. That is a great question. I I mean, Lakers are a team that are going to be in the playoff hunt. And I have no doubt about that. The Pacers, it's a bit of a different story, man, because we've seen just the strength of the surrounding cast around Tyrese Halliburton is not to the level of other really good teams in the NBA. Um, I definitely think they're a fringe playoff team. I think that at best they could be like an eight, seven seed. Um, But in terms of making a lot of noise, once the playoffs start, I don't have much faith in the Pacers. I do have a lot of faith in the Lakers. I'm kind of right there with you. Um, I think the Pacers are going to be the most annoying first round team to face. If you're a top four seed, that's kind of how I view them. I think just the fact alone that Tyrese Halliburton, one night could drop 35 and 15 with zero turnovers and just win the game for the Pacers by himself. That's annoying to have to face. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of the Lakers, like I view them as a legitimate title threat at this point. It all comes down to, can they address shooting at the deadline or can D'Angelo Russell become more of a shooter or Austin Reeves? Can he get his jump shot, jump shot back? Because 
even though I love the way they play defense and I love the way they attack the rim and get foul calls, three-point shooting is what runs this league right now. And two is less than three. And we've seen that play out with a lot of teams over the last few years we've done this podcast. I don't know what shooters are going to be available at the deadline, but they need to look around the league and see if they can find one that can be in their rotation. Is it Zach Levine, a guy that can take 13 threes in a game and hit eight of them, but he has some like defensive deficiencies, not an amazing playmaker, you know, kind of a little bit of a ball hog. Is that the guy you trust to learn the Lakers defense and kind of swing things? I don't know, but they have to probably figure out one more shooter and then I'll put them in a contender tier. Yeah, I mean, Zach Levine is the name that NBA pundits and LA media are throwing around in terms of this man will be our savior. Um, And if you've watched Chicago since Zach Levine's been gone, it seems like they enjoy basketball again. Yeah, Um, Zach Levine's not a guy I want on my team if I want to win, to be honest. Um, Just the way that he's been in Chicago, obviously he hasn't really had that much choice over his destination. And so going from Minnesota to Chicago, it's not good team to good team. Who knows what he could be like on a team that really has a lot to prove. But I think they got to find role players. I think they got to find guys who don't cost a Zach Levine salary that they can throw into, you know, a Torian Prince or a Cam Reddish role. And instead of Cam Reddish, you're out there to defend. It's a different dude who's just out there to hit threes. Um, I don't know who that name is, though. So many teams covet those shooters. And I don't think like a a team like Orlando, are they going to give up Joe Ingles? A team like Milwaukee's not giving up Beasley. Like, what? Where is a team where you could find like a clutch three-point shooter? Could you get Jordan Clarkson from the Jazz? Possibly, possibly. And this is the issue with the Lakers: is you kind of have to pull players off of garbage teams. The reason these teams are garbage is because they don't have guys that impact winning. Right. So it's so this kind of like Burks? Are we getting Alec Burks <laughs> from the Pistons. Right. I mean, you can go to the Washington Wizards and try to poach Kyle Kuzma, but do the Wizards want to trade him? I have no idea. Like, and what would and you what would offer? What could you even offer to get Kuzma? Yeah, it'd be D'Angelo Russell, Rui Hachimura, and like first round picks that are completely unprotected. Like, yeah. do the Lakers management want to go back down that path after their experiment with Westbrook? Uh, like, I'm not sure. So. Yeah, they're an interesting team to look at. I love the way they're playing. LeBron's at, he's literally at his peak still. He is a top five player. It's so fun to watch. Um, I'm kind of glad that the Pacers got some exposure to big games, but I'm also really happy that LeBron was the one to win the first in-season tournament ever. I think that has a nice special ring to it. So all in all, the in-season tournament, just as a recap, literally a 10 out of 10. Like Adam Silver absolutely smashed a home run out of this. We have people tuning in in November and December giving a shit about NBA games. That has not been what it was in the past. Like Christmas was basically the inaugural of the season for most casual NBA fans. Um, That has changed this year. Absolute home run from Adam Silver. Absolute slam dunk. The in-season tournament has been amazing. It's been great for the NBA. The fact that we have had even the players went from two weeks ago, nobody knew a thing about this tournament. (laughs) Nobody knew the rules. Nobody knew the point differentials. They didn't really care. And then as soon as it starts kind of working its way out, we figure out what teams are in the the playoff run and what teams aren't. It got serious, man. That Lakers-Suns game, what a game to just go rewatch. Close, it just came down to the very last second. That was an awesome, awesome game. I expect this to be a grand slam going forward. Even if, you know, even if it means nothing at the end of the season, even if we the Lakers and the Pacers are out of the playoff picture and not really dangerous teams, this was must-watch TV through the whole tournament. I mean, the, the Lakers-Pels game, that was garbage, and we can complain yeah. about Zion and the Pelicans if we want to. Basically, every other game, man, I don't have a single complaint. And I really like how it lets us view teams moving forward or like view teams in this present moment. Like the Pacers fans have something to brag about right now. They just do. They beat the Celtics and the Bucks in back-to-back games and made it to the in-season tournament final. Like that is something you get to brag about over other fan bases, Mm -hmm. whether you win the title or not, whether you make the playoffs or not, it doesn't matter. Like that level of success at this point in the season is something you can wear with a patch of honor. So yeah, it's like, absolutely perfect i love it yeah man it was absolutely perfect uh we are at the quarter point of the season here pretty much 
so I want to talk about two teams that I am excited and impressed to see at the top of the East and West. The Orlando Magic and the OKC Thunder are not two seeds in the East and West. These teams are young, 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 man. I don't think the Magic have a guy in their starting five that's older than 24. Um, the Thunder have been must-watch. The Magic have been must-watch. I love that we're at a point where these teams aren't just exciting for the future. They're actually really, really good now. That's what I'm really, really happy about. Yeah, you're spot on. Let's start with the Magic. Um, because both of us have had pretty differing opinions on how they operated their offseason. Um, I was very high on the Magic, and it frustrated me that they didn't go all in enough. You were fine with what they did. You liked their process. That's where we differed. We both loved the Magic, though. Mm -hmm. Paulo Bancaro is like a legit all-star. This guy is really freaking good at basketball. He's averaging 21 points a game on 49% from the field and 41% from three. That is the number that is shining in big bright lights right now because he was horrible from three last year. I think he have ended at like 29% or something. Um, and then Franz Wagner, who you've kind of changed your tune on a little bit, a little bit of a down, uh, downturn on the three-point shooting, but still 21 points per game on efficiency, a good efficiency from the floor. Good wing defense, the whole thing. Good playmaker. This team is legit. Like, they don't really have any holes other than my huge complaint in the offseason, which is their three-point shooting. They're 29th in three-point shots made this year. That will catch up to them at some point. But the defense is so fantastic, Ben. What a fun team to just be able to tune into every night and watch. The defense is insane, man. We have conver- Me and you have conversations about this all the time. You know, Anthony Black, Jalen Suggs, That is Lonzo and Alex Caruso from the Bulls. That's exactly what that is. Two absolute beast guard defenders who just shut down the point of attack completely. And then you've just got the size in Paolo and Franz. They're both 6'9 to 6'11. Just the sheer strength and size that they roll out with a starting five is monstrous. I got to give a lot of credit to Goga Batazzi for being a playable center in all of these minutes, I did not see this coming, man. When Wendell Carter Jr. Yeah. went down, I thought it was going to spell massive trouble. And the fact that they've continued to win through it, and he's a dude who just, you know, does whatever you need him to offensively, doesn't ask for any shots whatsoever, and is just a big body who's getting in people's way in the paint. He's been excellent. There's really just, you can go down the list, man, and say a little bit of nice things about everybody on this team because they're all collectively... You know, this is a team effort. These are these are team wins. Paolo and Franz are the head of the snake, but everybody is working together to get these wins. Yeah, this team is like humming with their chemistry right now. The Goga Badazzi thing is so weird to me because he just looked like a straight up bust in Indiana where he was drafted. Wendell Carter Jr. gets hurt. He comes in, great player. Seven points, seven boards, a block and a half a game, and he's like impacting games with dunks and hard screens and shit. Um, he's an attitude guy. Like, all of a sudden, he's a good player. Wendell Carter Jr. is coming back, which will help their spacing, and their defense will probably stay the same, if not get better with his appearance. The one guy I want to talk about that's like kind of an inflection point for their franchise a little bit is Markel Fultz. He's on an expiring deal. Jalen Suggs, Anthony Black, Cole Anthony are all playing really well. I just think they should trade him. I understand that Orlando has kind of fallen in love with Markel Fultz, and I get it because he's rehabbed his career there and he's played very well for this team, but what do you need? You need three-point shooting more than anything. You need to trade Markel Fultz, even if it's for a guy that's going to take threes off the bench. Like That is what you need. Um, If they get more shooting, because right now they're kind of a Cinderella story. I view them very similarly to how I viewed the Cavs last year, which was they have an awesome defense, but they're probably not a title contender or a serious playoff team. And it played out exactly how I thought last year. I mean, I thought the Cavs would at least beat the Knicks, but the three-point shooting is what killed them, right? Mm -hmm. And I just kind of see this glaring weakness with this Magic team. If they can somewhat change that with the trade at the deadline with using Fultz as a piece, maybe I start to consider them like an actual playoff threat maybe man i mean because you know i mean the fact that paolo is shooting 41 percent from three it's only on three attempts a game there are games where he takes zero three pointers 
But the fact right. that that's just a thing that you can just rely on at least one made three from Paolo every night is awesome and something I didn't expect at all. I expect Franz's yeah. numbers to jump. But yeah, you've got Paul Anthony, Jalen Suggs, and Gary Harris. Those are your spacers. Joe Ingles is not bad at spacing. He's shooting 40% from three, but he's old as shit. You don't play him very many minutes. So they need a guy who they can put out there for 26, 28 minutes a night who will take six or seven threes. You know, this this has been their team, their, their heel, their Achilles heel for years now, is they just don't have guys who want to take a lot of threes. And they can't figure out how to integrate those guys into their lineup once they get them. I think Gary Harris is an excellent shooter, but at this point in his career, he's not the defender he was in Denver. He's not really anything else. I don't know. Gary Harris is an awesome spacer, but you're right in the fact that they need more desperately. And I think getting rid of Markel Fultz is kind of inevitable. He's been an awesome story for them, and I think they should just be happy with the fact that they got to rehab his career and send him somewhere new. Where do you What do you get for him, though? That's the question is where do you send yeah. him and what do you get for him? Exactly. And, and, and that's just a hypothetical I've created. I'm not even sure who they should target or how much they'd have to give up to get a guy. But, you know, this team is the two seed off the back of Paulo and Franz. And this was what I was slamming the table for in the summer. It's like, these guys are good. These guys are all-star level players already in year two and year three. Like, you have an opportunity to potentially speed up your success by really taking the offseason seriously and the draft seriously I think me and you both agree they've absolutely nailed the Anthony Black pick even though I was banging the table for just all shooting in the draft he's really kind of propelled this defense into elite territory alongside Jalen Suggs and just the length and size they have everywhere it's worked out beautifully it was a great pick for my management I give them their flowers for that what really upsets me (laughs) is the Jordan Hawkins blunder in choosing Jet Howard over him. Jordan Hawkins is shooting 37% from three on seven attempts a game. That is the exact player they needed right now to be considered like a playoff threat in my eyes. So that disappoints me a little bit, but the Magic deserve all the credit for being the second seed in the East. Yes, you're absolutely correct. If they took uh, Jordan Hawkins instead of Jet Howard, we would have basically nothing negative to say about this team it would be that's that's perfect construction right there that's the player they needed to trade for you know if they had taken Grady Dick would it have made a difference it's not like he's being excellent out there in Toronto um they got one out of two they got one out of two I'm happy we're kind of on the same page with the Anthony Black thing he's just an amazing defender and such a heads-up player he really like his offense has not come all the way around yet he drives to the hole hard, and he'll have that for yeah. his whole career. But outside of that, his offense has not come around. But just the playmaking, the heads-up plays, and the defense, absolutely worth the pick. Yeah, for sure. And let's move on to Oklahoma City, because I think we've given the Magic their due flowers. Let's talk about another team. It's 14-7. and seven. They're second in a loaded Western Conference with veteran teams everywhere. This young team has kind of emerged as a legitimate contender. What have your thoughts been so far on this team's performance this season? I have two big things that I want to hit on. The first thing is that the OKC Thunder are top 10 offense and a top 10 defense right now. And the second thing is that we've added more talent to this team. We've added more guys who take shots and SGA is still averaging over 30 points a game. This kid is amazing, man. We have so many conversations about where SGA falls in the, in the NBA landscape. What kind of player is he? But I just, I not even, we don't even have to have that conversation. The fact that he's putting up 35 points, six boards, six assists, almost three steals a night. Who cares yeah. about where he lands amongst the rest? He's so amazing, man. Yeah, he's, he's a all NBA caliber talent, no question. And basically the conversation has become, is he fourth or fifth in MVP voting for the next three seasons, right? Because we have our top three. We have Embiid, we have Giannis and Jokic. Those guys aren't going anywhere. That is the top three for MVP voting for the next three years. It's just, is SGA going to be a staple in that MVP race? Is he going to be fourth or fifth every single year for the next three or four years? And where does that lead to team success as well? Because Jalen Williams... The good one, not the fat one who takes charges. <laughs> he's been <laughs> he's been incredible, right? 18 points per game on 52% from the floor and 37% from three, alongside above average playmaking for a wing and good defense. Like, you can't really ask for much more. 
And then this is where the conversation really gets freaky with Chet Holmgren. As a rookie, 20 games into his NBA career, 52% from the floor, 37% from three, while being one of the best shot blockers in the league, period. This team, with those three guys being willing to defend at the highest level, being willing to playmake at the highest level, being able to hit open shots, having the clutch gene, this team's really, really well uh, formulated. I think the thing we're going to get into, maybe not this season, but next season, is the fact that the surrounding cast outside of those three guys needs to improve. Those three guys are awesome. Lou Dort is a monstrous defender. Absolutely monstrous. His offense isn't reliable. Josh Giddy's offense is not reliable, man. You know, sometimes we clown the the draft take that they had when he was coming into the NBA where his weakness was absolutely everything. Um, But sometimes you watch him, man, and you're like, yeah, I get it. Like, he's not good at shooting. He's not fast. He's not strong. Um, He's not quick. He doesn't – he really is only good at making really good passes. And when you've got guys who can make really good passes, what is he out there for? Um, I think Casey Wallace was a slam dunk. I think Isaiah Joe is one of the most underrated role players in the NBA right now. His shooting is awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, But I think we're going to get to a point where just – Outside of those five guys, six guys, like Giddy's going to have to go pretty soon, and then we're going to have to get these role players. We're going to have to get better role players on this team. Yeah, if we're just talking about like how does this team turn into a dynasty or like a staple of contention, I do think it all revolves around Giddy and getting him off of the team. I think you draft Casey Wallace for a reason. I think SGA, the more he has the ball in his hands, the better. And Jalen Williams is a really, really good playmaker. It can run the pick and roll very, very well. And Giddy's not a spacer. Like you said, he's not an athlete. He's not a great defender. He's not a great shooter. So it's kind of, you know, he's an interesting prospect. But on this team, who seemingly has the potential to contend in the very near future, that's a guy that other elite NBA teams can pick on in a playoff series and kind of make you lose the series. Yeah, man, we saw that against who was it? Was it the Rockets the other day that just left him wide open on nine straight possessions? Just Mm -hmm. saying, you know what, man, we'd rather you shoot it than literally anybody else on the floor. Um, And, you know, with the the weirdness around Josh Giddey and the weirdness around his legal situation – um, will he be just a non-factor in a year or two? Are people even going to talk about him? I think he was so fun on OKC when they needed a guy to step up. And now that yeah. they've got a legit team, like, is there a team out there that really even wants Josh Giddy? Not with the noise around him right now. Definitely not. Like, teams won't touch him with a 10-foot pole until that's resolved or something comes out about that. Clearly, OKC has information we do not have because if, you know, what is going on? Like, if he was for sure guilty, he would never be touching an NBA court. And OKC is just trotting him out there proudly. Yeah. So they know something we don't, or I'm disgusted with how this is being handled. Something, one of the two. Um, but in terms of Giddy as a prospect, like, he's still an interesting enough piece to attach picks to him and get a massive haul back. Yeah. That could fit their roster more, like OG Ananobi. Right, like or a Pascal Siakam. I don't know if you're aiming for someone that big that might change the way your team plays, but Giddy is a interesting enough piece to be the center of a trade like that. So, yeah, the Thunder have been really, really good, and their coach is really, really good. He's instilled defensive habits in all of these guys as young, young players. Like this isn't, you know, the Shea being a two-way player is not a a fad. Like that is just who he is as a basketball player. He's a two-way guy. Um, that can be a an elite two-way player. Like that's he shouldn't just be described as like an all NBA guy. He's an elite two-way player. He's put himself in that category. They're gonna be really hard to beat, man. What is SGA's weakness? I mean, we we watched it when the playoffs came. The fact that that shoulder push just doesn't get you the kind of calls that it does in the regular season. Is that yeah. really the only thing that you can think of as an SGA weakness? Foul baiting, three point shooting. Um, there's never been a game where he's been forced to be the three-point shooter for his team and he's been successful at it. And the foul baiting, we saw it with Harden and Embiid for years. These guys that get like 12 points a game off free throws alone, the refs are just not going to give you that. I don't care how good you are as a basketball player. That Those 12 points a game you're getting from that turns into six or seven. 
And if you're scoring five points less per game than you were in the regular season, you're a pants pooper. That's the definition of a pants pooper. So those are the reasons why I still have concerns. I'm not backing off that take. I love SGI. I, I, I think he's a great player. I'm not backing off my take of this is a guy I want to see prove it before I announce him the next best. Like Anthony Edwards has a way better resume than this kid, but Shea Gilgis-Alexander is just God on a basketball court to a lot of NBA Twitter. I, I'm okay being the guy who ends up being wrong, but I wait longer than everyone else. I'm not ready to crown him the next guy. I'm just not. Does Anthony Edwards have a better resume? SGA's made first team all NBA. That's kind of a, that's hard to top. And he averages 13 points per game in the playoffs. Like Anthony Edwards is dropping 30 points per game as a 22 year old against the NBA champions. Like I, I don't even really think it's close. And I think I got in an argument with this kid on TikTok about it. I think SGA is very close to James Harden, where James Harden was a no doubt, like, top five, six, seven guy in the regular season every single year. The statistics look ridiculous when you look back on Harden during his prime, but it didn't matter. It just didn't matter. And I I want to see it matter. I want to see SGA have a playoff series where he averages 31, six and six with three steals. I want to see that happen. If he's the same guy as he is in the regular season, as he is, as he is in the postseason, he's a fucking top five player in the league at that point. But he's, he hasn't done it yet, so why am I going to say he's better than guys like Kevin Durant? Or why am I going to say he's better than Anthony Edwards? Why why would I do that? I, it's fair, man. I mean, the, the first team All-NBA, that's kind of a, a big one on a resume that Ant won't be able to top. But then you but go into the playoffs and you that. look at the way that he played. Oh, he definitely did. He definitely okay. did deserve it. It's putting up Bradley the stats Beal season. Yeah, Bradley Beal season. If Bradley Beal was putting up two and a half steals a game and was as efficient as SGA, I would like yeah. Bradley Beal. Um, but you know, he's not at the 11 free throws a game that he was last year. He's at seven and a half, which is still top six in the NBA, but it is not James Harden, Joel Embiid. We're just going to sit and watch this guy take free throws for 20 minutes every single game. Right. Yeah. But it's still, it's still a thing that needs to be proven. Like when these drop, I want to see, and the three point shooting, I think it it is going to be interesting, right? Now their team has changed drastically from last season where, they have Chet now, who shoots the three ball at close to 40% for them at the five. So does Shea even need to be put in a place where he's in a position where he needs to hit six threes in a game? Probably not. Probably not. Um, so they're, they've kind of remedied that. This is the year. This is the year we get to see if SGA is the guy, because we're talking about right now. They're the two seed. As a regular season player, he is the elite of the elite. Like I said, he's going to be their fourth or fifth in the MV- MVP conversation for the next three to four years, that is one of the best players in the NBA, no question. It's just, is this the guy that we think he is or we want him to be on Twitter? Yeah, we just got to wait for the playoffs before we can make that judgment. Um, I want to pivot and I want to talk about a team that we've talked about a little bit, but I don't think we've gone enough in depth about one player specifically. Joel Embiid is a much better passer this season than we have ever seen from him. 18 games in. 6.4 assists a game. Joel Embiid has never reached that number. He had 11 assists the other night. It comes down to two things for me. It comes down to the personnel they have around him, and it comes down to Nick Nurse. Nick Nurse has got these guys moving. The Tyrese Maxey and Joel Embiid two-man game is so quick, and the amount of little advantages Joel Embiid can find out of that. He can hit a De'Anthony Melton in the corner for three. He can hit a Kelly Oubre drive into the hoop. They just, they built their team so perfectly around, give the ball to Joel Embiid and move and make something happen as soon as he's got the ball in his hands. And Embiid makes the right read every time. And they're they're amazing right now. Joel Embiid is putting up like Jokic stats in some of these games. It's, it's awesome watching what he's doing. Yeah, he's right back in the MVP conversation. I think Jokic absolutely deserves the nod so far, even after his two games uh, that have been pretty ugly. But... You know, Embiid's dropping like 38. He's dropping 50 points. And then he, like you said, he'll have seven assists with like two turnovers. and Or he'll have 11 assists with three turnovers. You know what I mean? Like he has created a, you can see it every game you watch at Philly. He's more comfortable passing. He's more comfortable passing out of double teams. The dribble handoff has also helped him drastically. 
because his decision-making has been narrowed, right? He doesn't have to make some crazy play to get someone an open bucket. It's just how fast is Tyrese Maxey running past me right now? Should I keep it or should I give it to him? Am I going to hit this guy hard enough on the screen to give him space to get to the hole? Yes. Okay, I give him the ball. Like, that is the decision-making rather than, all right, I'm going to try to make this cross-court pass out of a double team because I see the guy and he's open. No, that's not what he's doing anymore. So he's been fantastic. And Nick Nurse, I think, has to be coach of the year. Just the way how different this team looks and how much better they're playing with the loss of an all-star level talent in James Harden. It's pretty impressive stuff. It's it's pretty amazing stuff. Last year, Joel Embiid had 39 games with four or less assists. This year, he's only got four so far. So wow. the difference is huge. Joel Embiid has been a three assist to two turnovers a game kind of guy, basically for his entire career. We get into the playoffs, and every single playoff series, practically, he averages more turnovers than assists. I think this is going to be the first year where it's clearly different. I don't know what it's going to look no. like in the playoffs, but just the offenses run differently, man. I don't see a way that this slows down once the playoffs start. Right, and I think, I'll speak for myself here, I'm not sure what you think about this, but if he's passing this way and this carries over into the playoffs, they are a legitimate title contender. I agree. What? Because this has been the Achilles heel of this franchise was, okay, just double-team Joel in the postseason, and your problem solved. Like, you're taking a guy who's a top five player and you're turning him into a top 30 player. You're dropping him drastically the second he enters the postseason just from a defensive mechanic switch. Like, that's all it takes. If he's good enough at passing to where that is no longer a weakness anymore, what is his weakness? The, the free throw thing? Sure. But he's also a guy who's so big, the free throws kind of seem to not matter? Or, like... They're, they're more consistent than you would see with a guard because of his size, right? Yeah. Um, you just have to foul that guy more. You have to. Uh, it's going to be really interesting watching this team in a playoff setting. I also just love the scoring output, man. Uh, you know, we see this every year. Joel Embiid is a guy who can put the ball in the bucket, but 50 yeah. points against the Wizards the other day. He's had yeah. how many 30-point games so far? 13 30-or-more-point games so far out of 18 games played. He's a monster. He's a monster, man. And the turnovers are always going to be high. He's never going to just magically become the the visionary kind of guy that a LeBron or a Jokic or a Halliburton are. But the fact right. that he's willing to make those passes and the speed that he's willing to make those passes with, it bodes so well for the Sixers, just long term. We were so worried, man. I thought this was an implosion year coming. Yeah. I really did. And Nick Nurse is a perfect coach for this situation. Tyrese Maxey has been an excellent second star, but Joel Embiid taking this leap as a passer, I never saw it coming. Yeah, if, if you can go back and listen to me when we found out Nick Nurse took this job, I was so confused. I was like, why would you ever sign up for a sinking ship? Like, James Harden's forcing his way out. Joel just shit his pants in the postseason again and had an injury in the postseason again. Like, why are you signing up for this? I don't understand. It's been beautiful. It's been beautiful to watch. Like even the, the even the guys that got back in the Harden trade, like Nick Batum shooting fifty five percent from three right now, it's because the looks are so damn wide open. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like, and I, I know we spoke briefly about this a few weeks ago, but they are a team where literally one minor move at the deadline can propel them into like I am here to win a title. Like if Alex Caruso joins the Sixers. Instantly, they have a lockdown guard that doesn't have to play a ton of minutes that's in their seven-man rotation for the postseason that's a winning player and will make winning plays, and then you have to take them more seriously. Yeah, man. If you get Alex Caruso, I mean, that guy just eats at Pat Bev's minutes and probably just yeah. eats all of his minutes, which is not a right. bad thing whatsoever. Patrick Beverly has been a great locker room guy. Uh, yes. They just have so many fun guys. I love Paul Reed. I love that he's finally getting some fun. He's a bit of a weird center, and Doc Rivers, for whatever reason, was terrified to play him, and I hated it. Uh, but he's getting a little bit of run here. You could just go down the list and, like, Nick Nurse, I think we just have to admit, Nick Nurse is a guy who gets the most out of players. We talked a lot of shit about him yeah. when the Raptors rolled out 11 foot nine guys um, and just had no strategy, no shooters, no nothing. I can't blame him for what that team was. You put a yeah. good team in front of him, you put good, talented players in front of him, and he will get the most out of them. Yeah, Nick Nurse is, uh, you know, top whatever coach in the league. Yeah. Like, he's he's in the elite tier. I know there's, like, a hundred coaches that you can kind of say, these guys know what they're doing. 
he's one of those guys where if you hand him a talented team, he enhances the talent. He's not a, He doesn't bring you down. No way. Um, just to pivot off of Philly and go to my hometown Cavs quickly, I'm not going to like stay on them for too long. I am a Cavs fan. I was having a meltdown the last time we did a podcast. Like I was literally considering never watching this team again because of how angry they were making me. Um, Evan Mobley's been just fine. He hasn't scored 20 points per game every other night like I wanted him to. He's still an absolutely elite defender, like of the highest caliber. And his passing has been great. And when the buckets are there, he takes them and he scores. And he's been 16 points better. No, not 16, eight points better from the free throw line than he was last year. Like those are significant improvements. Is there still room to grow? Yes. Would I like that to happen sooner rather than later? Of course. But I've been very happy with his play. I think it's just my expectations that clouded my view on him. But as I as I continue watching, I realize this is still the same guy I love. Um, and they've won three in a row. And they're starting to be a little bit more serious. Now, the three-point shooting from Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell just not being a factor this year is really weird for me to watch. Because uh, these were two guys that aren't... Like, Darius Garland's one of the best shooters in the league. And the jump shot just hasn't come around this season for whatever reason. And Donovan Mitchell was like at 39% last year when he was hucking three-point shots all year long. Um, and it just hasn't happened this year. So I'm expecting actually some regression, po- positive regression, where these guys kind of become themselves from three. And the Cav- everyone else on the Cavs is playing well. So I, I, I kind of am excited to see what this team looks like in the coming weeks. They've won three in a row. Detroit, they beat Orlando by 10, and then they beat Miami by 12. I'll take that. Yeah. They've won five of their last six games. They got another really fun game coming up tonight against the Magic. Huge Uh, game. Huge game. Uh, The thing we got to just recognize about Evan Mobley is the fact that Max Struess and George Niang combined for 19.6 shots a game. You brought these two dudes in this year. That just, just takes away shots from other players, especially when it's a player like Mobley who's not looking to score himself. You're not going to have opportunities for him to take 16 field goal attempts a game. Um, And although that's what we want, and although, you know, we imagine a future where Donovan Mitchell is off this team and they've retooled a little bit. In that situation, Evan Mobley's a dude taking 16, 17 shots a night. Um, But just the way the team's set up now, that's not what they look for from him. I think they need a Darius Garland step up in a massive way if they want to be this team that we had our sights on if we we thought they were going to be a home court advantage team i mean i'm not that far moved off of that the teams at the top are really really good right now and the magic might yeah. be here to stay in terms of home court right. advantage but the Cavs are right there man right right under the the celtics bucks sixers tier that's where the Cavs yeah. are. and it's funny like their free agent signings have been exactly what i hoped for george niang shooting 37 percent from three max truce shooting 37 percent from three and the majority of their looks are coming from the three-point line. That is exactly what I wanted as a Cavs fan. You have one of the best shooters in the league, uh, Darius Garland, who shot like 41% from three last year, shooting 32% from three a quarter way into the season. That is disgusting shit. Like, that's got to pick up at some point. If it does even remotely come close to what he did last year, we're going to start to see this team win games and win games by a lot. I totally agree, man. Um, outside of those guys, is there anybody that you've been kind of impressed with? I saw some good moments from Craig Porter Jr. He's been shooting 55% from yeah. the field. Is there anybody yeah. outside the starting five that, you know, someone who's not a diehard Cavs fan would know about that you want to give a little bit of love to? It is Craig Porter Jr. Yeah. This is a guy that they just picked up off the scrap heap. He absolutely played am- like amazing basketball in summer league. Um, I thought he was kind of going to be a guy that was trapped in the G League all year, and I was excited to watch him next year. But very early into the season when Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell got hurt, they just pulled him up to the roster and he just played amazing, like immediately. Um, So Kobe Altman deserves a lot of credit because he drafted Amani Bates, who's been unbelievable in the G League this year, in the second round, just a talent play. And it's seemingly worked so far. And then Craig Porter Jr. as a rookie is giving you valuable minutes already as a rookie. Um, something I want to pat myself on the back on is Isaac Okoro is ass. Um, <laughs> and all of Cavs Twitter can go suck a dick because I've been screaming this for years now. And they keep telling me the leap is coming. No, it's not. Time to get a freaking grip. Yeah. It's not coming. Um, 
But yeah, Craig Porter Jr. immediately has just been better than Isaac Okoro. Um, Sam Merrill is a guy I'm hoping to see a little bit more of moving on to the season, just because he can stroke it from three. And Dean Wade. Dean Wade's been healthy this year, and he's been okay. Uh, so that's my Cavs report. <laughs> Dean Wade last year, man. We had 15 games of Dean Wade. That was just fucking incredible. I remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it's cool to see them just kind of pull out guys who can be a little bit productive. I kind of expected Amani Bates to be that dude who just, for whatever reason, just came in immediately ready to go. And they put yeah. him in the G League, and I've seen some good stuff from him in the G League. Yeah. Absolutely. We've had this conversation probably a lot more off air than we've had it on air. How do you feel right now about Donovan Mitchell and his place in Cleveland? He's leaving, guaranteed. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what has happened. Because in my head, right, when the trade was made with for Donovan Mitchell, it was because Kobe Altman thought by year three, Evan Mobley would be the superstar that he envisioned. Evan Mobley, while being elite, is not a superstar. Let's not kid ourselves, right? So in Donovan Mitchell's eyes, he was joining a potential contender. They're not a contender. With the way Giannis, the Celtics are built, the way Philly's playing even, Magic have taken a leap above the Cavs. They're not a contender. Donovan Mitchell is going to choose to play in a big city where he wants to play. He will either be in Miami or New York next season, kind of unquestionably. Um and I know that, and I recognize that. Now, if he goes to Miami, I want Jaime Hawkes back, and I want Duncan Robinson back, and three first-round picks unprotected. That'll be fantastic. And if he goes to New York, I want RJ and Emmanuel quickly with three first-round picks unprotected. Either way, I'm fine. I'd love for this team to pick back up and become a potential contender, but if they don't, the, the pivots from this are fine, especially considering the concerns you've always had about this team build two six one guards at the same time has revealed itself as a problem. There's just no there's no pretending that it's not anymore. It's it is an issue. So either way, I'm happy. I love watching Spida, but if he leaves, whatever. I think that's totally fair, man. Yeah, my issue has always been you got two short, short guards at the one and two, and then two guys who can't shoot at the four and five. Yeah. And yeah. it's a unique strategy, man. We see teams playing in ways that nobody else in the NBA is playing. And then we yeah. watch it play out for a year and we figure out why nobody else was trying that strategy. Yeah, exactly. And I think even Jared Allen and the Evan Mobley, you know, pairing could work. It's got beautiful if there was moments, more... man. They have some beautiful moments passing back and forth. Yeah, exactly. It, I think it could work if there was positional size elsewhere, right? So if you have RJ Barrett at the three, who's six foot seven, six foot eight, Max Struess at the two, who's six foot four, six foot five, that's fine. Um, uh, but I think there's ways around um, the weirdness in, in Cleveland. Um, as a way to end this episode, can I run some fake trades that I made Let's uh, past you and you just say who says no or who says yes sure. to kind of cap this thing off? Yeah. All right. So the first one is the Kings get OG Ananobi and the Raptors in return get Harrison Barnes, Kessler Edwards, and two unprotected first round picks. I think... I mean, honestly, I think the Raptors will say no. I believe, I feel like they've said no to offers like that in the past. I would love that for the Kings. Okay. All right. Respect it. Uh, moving on. The 76ers get Alex Caruso, and the Bulls get DeAnthony Melton and two first-round picks unprotected. Two first-round picks unprotected. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Philly needs to do that. I mean, okay. DeAnthony Melton's been an awesome guy for them, but... Is he really a guy you can count on offensively? He's had some really good moments, man. He's shooting almost 40% from three, and he's yep. a good guard defender in his own right. Right. I'm not sure that they need to do that. Okay. So Philly says no, Philly they don't says do that. No, yeah. Okay, here we go. The Knicks get Donovan Mitchell for RJ Emmanuel quickly in three unprotected first-round picks. I want to watch you cheer for RJ Barrett and <laughs> Karis LeVert at the same time. I say that's a great trade that goes through. Okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> the Pistons get Zach Levine, and the Bulls get Boyan Bogdanovich, Joe Harris, and Jaden Ivey. I think Zach Levine would retire, man. It's being sent from one dog shit team to another dog shit yeah. team. I mean, but who says no? Who says no? Um, Zach Levine's agent, but I don't think either team, man. I think that could work for both okay. teams. Okay. And then we have, I think, the final one. Yes, the final one. The Raptors get Clint Capella, DeAndre Hunter, and A.J. Griffin, and the Hawks get Pascal Siakam. Whoa. 
that's a big trade, man. I feel like the Raptors have to send a little bit more. Okay. I don't know, hey, man. I don't know. That's just do my we, first thought, but I like that. Okay. Do we throw Grady Dick into it just to say, here's a young player in return? I, Does that make it more? I think that could make it a little bit more enticing because DeAndre Hunter is such a rock solid role player for them. His only issue is just, will he be healthy? Right. Injury right. prone. Injury. AJ Griffin's barely playing minutes for the Hawks, and Clint Capella's not as good as their backup center, Anyeka Kongwu. So I think it's kind of like, uh, hey, Raptors, you can retool with shooting, and here's a backup big, and then we'll take your contracts that you don't feel like re-signing. Because yeah. Pascal's contract's expiring. He's expecting a massive deal. Do the Raptors want to lock into that with the new CBA coming? Yeah. The Hawks do. The Raptors don't. I think you're right, man. I think you're right. I love Clint Capella, but he's just not as effective of a dude as he used to be. No. And the Hawks can kind of brand to their fans, hey, we have a pseudo big three, right? Pascal Siakam, Trey Young, and DeJounte Murray. Like, all of those guys kind of hover in the same air where it's like they're they're kind of all-stars. Like, they are they make the all-star game like every other year type of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, that's a good enough team to kind of say, hey, like, we can beat any good team on any given night if one of these guys pops off. Yeah, um, I don't mind that at all, man. I think that could absolutely work for them, for both teams. All right. Those were my five. I'm still going to be labbing on that because it's a lot of fun. Oh, I but, love uh, doing those episodes. We'll come back at some point. We'll do a mock trade episode. Those are always fun. Yeah, closer to the deadline for sure. Definitely. But, Ben, do you have anything else to say before we get on out of here? That's going to do it for me. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We'll catch you later. Peace. Peace.